I've been reporting on education for decades now. And one thing I love about this beat is that I'm constantly learning new things and discovering people and ideas I've never heard of before. That's definitely the case with our episode this week. I'm Jeff Young, an editor here at EdSurge. And over the past year, we've been doing a series on learning science and the idea of how to better engineer learning, if that's possible. And my research has led me to learn about some fascinating and surprising new characters. And the one you'll hear about today is kind of a forgotten one. Fred Keller, a behavioral psychologist who, who devised a new method of college teaching. This episode originally aired back in June. And as you'll hear, it, it touches on some big questions. Like, what exactly is good teaching? And why are there so many fads in education? I mean, you might think educators um, and researchers, they could apply a rigorous method to figure out how to best teach. We are putting out this Encore episode in part so we can focus on some exciting new podcast series that we're working on. So stay tuned. In the meantime, if you like the show, please do tell a friend or share the EdSurge podcast on social media. Okay, here's that episode, What a Forgotten Instructional Fad from the 60s Reveals About Teaching. Back in the 1960s and 70s, an experimental form of teaching made a big splash at colleges. It was called PSI, or the Personalized System of Instruction. If you haven't heard of it, you're definitely not alone. I've been covering education for a long time, and I had never come across it. And neither had our guest today, Jonathan Zimmerman, a professor at the University of Pennsylvania who studies higher education. In fact, he said this was the most surprising thing he learned about when he was researching his latest book, which is about the history of college teaching in America. It was started in the 60s by a behavioral psychologist named Fred Keller, who was a friend and a former grad school uh, colleague of B.F. Skinner. That's right, the B.F. Skinner. The one with the rats and the levers. Skinner, as you might remember from high school psych class, is the father of a theory known as behaviorism, which emphasizes things like the power of giving positive rewards to reinforce certain behaviors. That can help rats through a maze, but Keller, in a way, was bringing Skinner's ideas to college instruction with PSI. What Keller did was he designed a system made up of self-paced modules, as he called them, where, uh, you know, if you were taking psychology, which was what he taught, maybe you'd have, you know, a unit where you start out with the history of psychology and you'd read a bunch and then you'd take a test with a proctor. And if you passed, you'd go on to the, the next one and so on. Um, and uh, Keller said that this would be much better than the norm, A, because it was personalized. You could do it at your own pace and everyone's different. And so they could do it differently. Um, and also because with each of these tests, you would be rewarded in the way that Skinner thought we operated. You know, you would get like a little piece of cheese like the mouse gets, you know, and that would encourage you to, mixing metaphors now, sort of move to the next part of the labyrinth. To be clear, there wasn't actual cheese given in these college classes. The idea was that instead of lectures, each student would read through materials at their own pace, guided by student tutors who had gone through the course before. And students get the next set of materials after they could pass a test on the last set. Um, and the thing that surprised me was that there were institutions where a quarter of classes were taught via PSI. Some colleges taught 25% of their courses using PSI in the 70s. This was a huge fad. MIT was trying it. The National Science Foundation was giving out grants to support it at colleges. Keller even set up a center at Georgetown University devoted to this idea. 
He called it the Center for Personalized Instruction. When I first learned about the Keller thing, I like, I was just, I spent a month, fortunately, resisting the idea of just dropping everything and doing a biography of Fred Keller. Uh, because I just thought the whole story, and I, I don't know if you caught this, but like he first created it like in Brasilia, in the new like modern capital of Brazil, because they didn't want to be in like Rio or Sao Paulo, because they were moving to this modern age and they were going to make this sort of this kind of sterile new kind of space odyssey type capital. And so it all fit into that view of this, this sort of like uh, uh, this kind of um, uh, uh, hygienic modernity you know, everything was going to be like more official and efficient. And, you know, it was part of this crazy dream that like Stanley Kubrick in some way was sending up in 2001. You know, um, it's like, no, this is going to be very inhuman. So what happened to this approach? And what can be learned from this faded notion? Which, by the way, it sounds a lot like trends today in online personalized learning. Hello and welcome to the EdSurge podcast a weekly look at how education is changing. I'm Jeff Young, an editor and reporter here at EdSurge. And today we are looking at the surprising history of college teaching in America, starting with this odd utopian case of PSI. It turns out the story of PSI itself is actually pretty short. It ended almost as quickly as it began uh, because students didn't like it. Um, Some of them did at the beginning, but... um, One of the things we found was that first-generation and working-class students did not succeed in PSI. Often, PSI assumed that they had study skills and sometimes reading and writing skills that they didn't possess. Um, Then the larger reason it failed was that actually, despite the name Personalized System of Instruction, it was incredibly impersonal. It's true that at some point you showed up for a test with a proctor. Um, but you probably didn't see the professor. The professor was like the Wizard of Oz, like she or he was just behind this curtain and they had sort of devised this machine, which is really what it was. Um, And students started to say like, I'd like to see the professor. And the most important thing to be learned is that self-paced does not mean personal. So it was highly personal insofar as it was self-paced. Um, One of the things I found fascinating in researching that subject is I found this great letter from a former student of Fred Keller, and Fred Keller was the guru, you know, the founder of PSI. And he says, look, you know, Fred, if I had, like, met you via PSI, I wouldn't be a psychologist. Um, If you had taught me via the system you're now touting, I wouldn't be doing what I'm doing now because your system is impersonal. Because you wouldn't have gotten that mentor relationship that... Yes, and, and you wouldn't have gotten the kind of spiritual and charismatic effect that you can only get by being in the same room. I know this sounds, you know, uh, uh, very uh, touchy-feely and crystal-like, and it's impossible to measure, but all of us have experienced it. All of us have. And the student of Fred Keller did. That's what he was saying, right? He was saying that, you know, as per the uh, musical Hamilton, there is something that happens in the room where it happens. Um, And I was with you in that room. And I participated in a kind of, yes, personal and charismatic exercise with you. And if I hadn't, I wouldn't be here today. Maybe if I had done your PSI system, I would have absorbed the information, right? I would have learned some psychology, 
perhaps I would have gone to learn more, but I wouldn't have been inspired to really invest myself in it. And it's in that sense that it was impersonal. Um, the other thing I should add is the people who succeeded in it were generally the people who already had the skills it demanded. And that's exactly like online. You know, you can exaggerate some of these parallels and there's always danger in doing so. PSI is not online instruction, okay? But there's always overlap, right? There's a Venn diagram, right? And I would say, here's where the overlap is. When people looked at who learned and who did it in PSI, it was generally people that already had very strong reading and writing skills that succeeded. And people, especially what today we would call first-gen students, although that wasn't the term at the time, but people who were the first in their family to go to college, people that came from substandard high schools, um, people that were minorities, they generally washed out in PSI. And there is an absolute analogy to that in online instruction. Most of the literature that I've seen suggests that people who succeed in online already have, ironically, a lot of the reading and writing skills that online instruction has demanded. And people that don't have those skills don't get it from online instruction. So, you know, when you compare populations face-to-face -face and online, you find that people learn a little bit more face-to-face. -face. But when you look at first-gen and minority populations, the drop-off is radical. It's much larger. Um, and we saw exactly the same thing with PSI. So as I mentioned, that's just one part of Zimmerman's new book called The Amateur Hour, A History of College Teaching in America. And I actually had to ask, why is it called The Amateur Hour? I'm glad you asked because a lot of people look at the title and they imagine that the answer is, is that college teaching is really bad. Um, that is not the answer um, because amateurs can be good or bad, right? Uh, the greatest gymnast of my youth was Nadia Comaneci and that was in the pre-professional era of the Olympics. She was an amateur. Um, so the answer is not that uh, they're bad or that they're good. The answer is we haven't professionalized the function of teaching. And when I say we haven't professionalized, we haven't created systems to both assess and reward what is good or bad teaching. So compare that to research and you'll see a very stark difference. So I just wrote this book that you're very kindly discussing. Um, after I wrote it, I didn't submit it to students for a Scantron evaluation, uh, which is what happens with my teaching. Um, it was submitted to other experts in the field who could hopefully render an informed judgment on it. Um, we don't do that in teaching for many reasons, but one of them is I don't think we have a kind of accepted set of principles or canons about what constitutes good or bad practice. I mean, I think it's growing. I think there's good knowledge in that area. The problem is, is that we as professionals, um, to use a loaded term, haven't actually systematized that knowledge um, into our practice. What I'm really saying is that nobody really assesses our teaching in a professional manner. We are assessed by our students, and I should tell you I take that seriously. I think there are important things you can learn from student evaluations, like is the teacher available? Um, uh, is the teacher on time? Does the teacher return work promptly? And those things are important. But here's one question they can't answer. Is the teacher a good teacher? Is the teacher effective at teaching? Is that because the students don't even know what they don't know? 
Well, I mean, I, I, you know, I, I think it's because um, uh, the, the um, tea thing is, yes, an extremely complex matter. Obviously, the students all have perceptions of us as teachers, but to your point, it turns out that the students are quite poor judges of how much they've learned. Um, uh, so, so when you ask students, did you learn a lot in this class? And then you test them or otherwise assess them. It turns out that they're not very good judges of that. Um, and I think that's why we need peer review of teaching. Because um, I think a fellow historian could come into my class and could understand and perceive things that students can't um, uh, because she or he is an expert in that field. And this lack of clear agreement on what good teaching is and how to measure it is part of why we get these teaching fads, Zimmerman argues. And it's why big teaching awards often go to professors who are trying some innovative new approach rather than teachers doing something tried and true particularly well. So what stops colleges from making teaching a more professionalized activity? Well, I think there are a few things, but um, one of them is that uh, teaching is a hugely personal matter. Um, uh, I suppose you could argue in the online era, it's become radically more impersonal. But one of the stories that I tell in my book is that students have been protesting teaching for about a, a, a hundred years. Um, and they have been protesting most often that it's highly impersonal. So student evaluations actually date to the 1920s when suddenly the universities got very huge and uh, places like University of Michigan, suddenly the students start uh, showing up at a class that was supposed to have a hundred people. There are 400 in there. They're all stuffed into one stuffy room. There's a dude up in front with a microphone that doesn't work. And they're like, why am I here? Um, uh, I don't even, I can't hear the professor, let alone know him. Um, uh, and they're saying teaching should be more personal. And so that's been one of the dominant refrains. And so we get smaller seminars out of that. We get freshman classes. Um, we get different sorts of experiential learning. But to your question, and here I think is the connection, precisely because it is personal and relational. Um, I, we've resisted professionalizing it. It's very hard to professionalize something that is that personal. And um, it's also um, something that makes us quite defensive, um, precisely because it's so tied up in our being. So if somebody doesn't like a book I've written, well, you know, oh, well, maybe they were right, maybe they were wrong. Um, uh, to use a lot of the adverb, I'm not going to take it personally. But if they come to my class and they say that I sucked, I think I'll take that personally. Um, uh, it's, more, it's, it's, it's more of a judgment, I would argue, on my character, on my being. Um, and I get that. Um, uh, I acknowledge it in my book, and I think it's an erstwhile dilemma for all of us. You know, how do you organize and professionalize something that is so personal? And here's another issue. Might you make it worse? You know, 
if you start creating elaborate bureaucracies to measure and judge it, might you actually depersonalize it? Might you take some of the charisma and some of the idiosyncrasy and some of the serendipity out of it? And those are, those are real and insistent questions uh, to which I don't have good answers. I, I just try to uh, kind of explore them and raise them because I think they are the important questions. Okay. So essentially you acknowledge that this could be done in a way that's worse than the, you know, where it's worse than doing nothing to try to professionalize it. But so it's, 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 you're actually saying do it, but you're saying do it carefully. Definitely. And look, experiment. Right. Um, I think because there are 4000 places we can get a BA, we should have an opportunity. It provides a great opportunity for a set of experiments. And they, you know, uh, in my book, I chart some of them. I mean, we, we've done them before in different ways. We've had all kinds of alternative and um, uh, 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 um, colleges and alternative classes, but we haven't done it enough. One of the ironies of college teaching in this country is despite the incredible diversity of our institutions, it's pretty static. Like it looks the same in lots of different places across different kinds of institutions and even across time. I mean, one of the thought experiments I like to do with my students is I say, let's imagine that, you know, Teddy Roosevelt came back from the dead, you know, just like sort of the junior high school seance thing. Um, and Roosevelt himself, by the way, was a historian and uh, president of the American Historical Association. Anyway, you take him to my university for a day and you show him systems of communication, systems of transportation, systems of uh, gender and marital relations. Um, I think he'd be blown away. But then if you took him to a classroom, I think most classrooms, he'd probably say, oh, yeah, I remember this. Yeah, this guy stood up and lectured, and then, oh, by the way, there was a discussion section, and there was a, there was, there was a TA in there, and uh, uh, he's trying to lead a discussion, probably not that well. Um, uh, you know, there were two midterms and a final. Uh, I think he would recognize it uh, in ways that he wouldn't recognize other systems, and I think that's because the amount of change has been so much less. I'll admit, I kept coming back in my head to that story of PSI the teaching fad. In his book, Zimmerman noted that the inventor of the approach, Fred Keller, ended up admitting it was a failure after it fell out of favor and that center at Georgetown he started had been shut down. So as we try new personalized learning experiments today, why don't people talk more about this chapter in college teaching and learn from it? One reason that, that people haven't studied it is it, it doesn't really fit into our iconic or stereotypical picture of the 60s and 70s you know, which we still imagine is a time of like, you know, tea groups and encounter groups, you know, and, and um, you know, funky professors wearing dashikis and sitting on the floor with their students, you know, and doing radical stuff, you know, and of course that happened. And I do talk about it in my book, but, you know, there's no era about which there is more nostalgia than the 1960s, none. And I'm as guilty of it as anybody. You know, um, and, you know, this system, because it was a system, right, it doesn't fit into that story, right? So when Mario Savio, the leader of the free speech movement, was complaining about poor instruction, he called it a machine, 
right? That was his metaphor for the entire university, right? What was bad about the university was it, it was a machine. It was impersonal, it was mechanistic. Jeff, you know what PSI was? A machine, totally, right? It was absolutely, and, you know, um, and avowedly so, right? I mean, that's what Fred Keller said, right? You know, um, this is a machine era and we need a kind of machine. Now he tried to leaven it with certain personal dimensions like this kind of, you know, peer tutoring or monitoring or whatever you want to call it. Um, but, you know, when Fred Keller was asked for analogies to his PSI, to his system, he actually harkened back to the Lancasterian system of the 19th century. And this goes a little bit into the weeds, but Joseph Lancaster was this um, British educator um, who came to the United States during the common school era during the you know, 1830s and 1840s and tried to inscribe the system that became known as the Lancasterian system, where you've got hundreds of kids in a room. You designated a couple students as monitors. That was his word. And they would, you know, um, let kids move forward, you know. Um, uh, and Keller said, you know, the only antecedent to this is the Lancastrian thing. Now, ironically, the Lancaster thing also flashed and fizzled. And Lancaster himself, who was something of a crank, like he ended up in Mexico and Central America. I mean, it's like a crazy story, you know, that most people, again, don't remember. I was also curious about why people don't talk that much about the fact that protests back in the 60s at colleges were partly about the poor quality of teaching there. We're in another moment of mass protests now because of systemic racism, highlighted by the recent killing by police of George Floyd. Does Zimmerman see any parallels today to those past protest movements? Well, look, it's, you know, it's too early to say. Um, you know, I think that all of us in a way are flying by the seat of our pants right now. Um, you know, uh, I think that um, higher education is going to catch it, is catching it in two directions. One, the question of cost, um, and two, the question of race. And they're related, but they're also distinct. You know, um, you know one has to do with college as a public good and the way that we finance it or not as a public good. And the other has much more to do with questions of equity, um, you know, questions of curriculum, you know, um, questions not just of, you know, access, but, you know, who's getting access? Um, uh, and so, you know, I think that between the coronavirus and the, and the, um, the George Floyd murder, I think it's going to underscore those two questions in a very, in a very profound way. Now, whether students are going to demand better teaching, which is, by the way, what they did in the 60s, that's a very open question. And here's why, Jeff. Better teaching costs more money. It just does. You know, um, that's one lesson we've already seen from the pandemics. We are not going to recapitulate what happens in classrooms over the internet. We did the best that we could, and we were in an abrupt transition. Perhaps we can do better. But anybody who says that we were able to provide the same kind of education to our students hasn't been listening to the students. Um, because every poll that I've seen of students says that we didn't. And it takes nothing away from people's good faith efforts to try to provide that education to say that it didn't work. Um, uh, but it is cheaper, um, right? It is cheaper not to turn the lights on have everybody at home and teach them online. 
to do it better will always cost more money. Things of value cost, right? They cost money. Uh, if they don't, they're not of value. Um, so, um, you know, I, I, will there be this sort of wave of students demanding better instruction like there was in the 60s? Um, obviously, I'm not a soothsayer, but I would, I would predict, given what we've already seen, is that if more and more instruction goes online, the answer to that question is going to be yes. People will protest that. I'm not saying it will take the form of physical protests or some sort of rally, um, but students are gonna resist that. In fact, they've already announced that they're going to. You know, look at how many students have said, I'm not going back in the fall if it's online. Um, that's a form of protest, right? It's, it, it's not on a banner uh, and it's not saying fight the power, um, but it is a kind of resistance. It is a kind of protest. And I think we're going to see more of it. Thank you again for, for sharing our, your thoughts today. Thank you. It was fun. This has been the Ed Surge Podcast. Each week, we bring you conversations like this one. You can find us anywhere you listen to podcasts. And please subscribe if you don't already. If you like the Ed Surge Podcast, please take a moment to give a shout out on social media. That's the best way to help us spread the word. We saw several mentions out there on Twitter last week, and we really appreciate the support. This episode was edited and produced by me, Jeff Young. You can find me on Twitter at jryoung or on email at jeff at edsurge.com. We'll be back next week with more on how education is changing. Thanks for listening. That was my five-year-old yelling that you might have heard in the background there.